Let's turn in God's Word to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel and chapter 8. We're reading this morning Matthew chapter 8 and verses 23 through 27. Matthew's Gospel, verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And before we read God's Word, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon us. Our Father, now we come to Your Word as we were instructed in Ecclesiastes to hear You. We pray that You would grant us that blessing of hearing You, and only You can grant that. For only You can grant the ability to hear and continue to hear. Only You can cause us to hear not only in our ears, but in our minds, in our hearts. And do Your great work even of salvation, of changing the heart, and granting the gift of faith, and justifying Your people, and adopting them into Your family, and sanctifying Your people. Only You can do this by Your grace. And so send forth Your Spirit and power. And grant to us the hearing of Your Word that You would change our wills and our affections, our loves. And You would grant that we would hate every evil thing and love every righteous thing in accordance with Your Word. And Father, now we ask that You would grant Your servant the words that are Your words. That we would hear Jesus speak and not Him. And so humble your servant, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 23. These are God's words. And when He was entered into a ship, His disciples followed Him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves But he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey Him? Those are God's words. So far in this chapter, we have seen the Lord Jesus show forth His authority and His power by healing the leper, healing the one of palsy and the one who had a fever. And those showing that He is also the only one who can heal the soul of each one of us the same by His Word and by His touch. And we have heard what it then means to follow Christ in part. That is, that those illnesses, those diseases, the sicknesses of the body are due to a spiritual condition that 
has effects upon our physical condition due to the fall of man in the garden with Adam and Eve. And then sin uh, there entered the world. And we have found that only Christ can heal then, not only the body, but the soul. And the passage before us is no different. Christ is our substitutionary atonement. Right? For all who believe on Him to cover their sins uh, and their, their guilt of uh, by His blood shed on the cross, He is your substitutionary atonement. And that we studied last Lord's Day. And now we come back to studying what it means to follow Christ. And we see those words in our passage in there in verse 23. When He was entered into a ship, His disciples followed Him. So what does it mean to follow Him? We learn based in just uh, these verses. We see something of that. Following Him, we have learned already, takes and, and means that you have to sacrifice things. Sacrifice things of this world. You have to give up the things of this world for His sake. It means suffering, we've learned. Suffering, it means following Him above all other things. But now we must consider as we follow Christ first and above all things, you see here the first point, following Christ into storms. Following Christ into storms. Verse 23 again, And when He was entered into a ship, His disciples followed Him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but He was asleep. Remember in verse 18, He had given commandment because of the multitudes uh, to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But then a couple people wanted to follow Him. And that's where we got off right before this in verses 18-22 to 22, uh, of those two uh, men who wanted to follow Him. The first one, He remembers, said, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. That scribe did not understand what he was professing to the Lord Jesus Christ in that moment. Because as we heard, following Christ means that we will suffer. The disciples of Christ will suffer. You will suffer if you follow Christ. In verse 21, the other man who wanted to follow Christ, he wants to follow Christ, but first he wants to put that off. The following Christ, he wants to put that off until he can bury his father. He has to bury his father first. And we heard in Luke's Gospel from the same passage that he wants, uh, he was called to preach the Gospel of the Kingdom. And he wants to put that off in following Christ so he can bury his father. And so he said, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But in these verses we see where following Christ faithfully can lead. The twelve disciples followed Him as they entered into a ship, a boat. Verse 18, it was Jesus who determined, Jesus determined, He commanded them, we need to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We are the ones. We need to cross to the other side. In verse 23, Jesus is the one who first entered the boat in which the disciples then followed Him. Rightly followed. 
And following Jesus, they entered into a storm. And such a storm that the waves were coming up over the sides of the boat. Our passage it says that the ship was covered with the waves. Not just that they were crashing into the boat. The ship was covered with the waves. It was taking on water. Mark's Gospel in the same passage, the same account, says that the, the ship was full of water. What happens when a ship is full of water? It sinks. Luke's Gospel says, it was filled unto sinking. What this teaches us first is following Christ is not something that is free of trouble. It's a myth of modern evangelism. We've probably heard many times in modern church today that following Christ is smooth. It's trouble-free following after Him. There might be little things here and there that are struggles for you, but uh, mostly it is, it is smooth. But that could be not further from the truth. And Christ never said following Him would be trouble-free. We don't see that in the Scriptures. Rather, He shows the opposite and He tells us the opposite. We've already heard how He tells us the opposite. Now He shows it. He also means in following Christ, we have prayed today, that it means taking up our cross and following Him. It means enduring hardships. And it means even if necessary, following Him into a storm that might cause your boat to sink. With the threat of being drowned. And so He leads His disciples, His followers into dangers. Why? He does it to stir up our faith. He does it to to the trial of our faith and for the evidencing, as we see in the passage of His own glory. To show forth His power and His authority as God. Again, He's the one who gave commandment to cross to the other side. He's the one who first got into the ship. He's leading His followers into the sea and into the storm. And He has given His followers great warrant to follow Him. As we've seen since chapter 5. And even us, He's given great reason for us to follow Him. In everything, even into the storm, and worse, unto death, persecution, suffering. But here it's just a storm. Of course, if we were in the storm, we wouldn't say it's just a storm, would we? But compared to other things that following Christ means, it's just a storm. 2 Corinthians 1, it says... Paul said, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Paul, the Apostle Paul, despaired of life because following Christ led him to such struggles. But in God, or excuse me, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. 
Right? So they despaired and yet kept trusting in the Lord that He would deliver them. He said they were pressed above measure, above strength, beyond that which natural strength natural strength would endure in order that they should not trust in themselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. The Lord's put His followers here in Matthew 8 in a very similar situation as to the Apostle Paul and those with him in Corinth, or as he's writing to the church in Corinth. The Lord and His purposes brings you, His people, into situations which are beyond you in order that you would abandon all your self-confidence and call upon Him in truth and prayer and plead to Him, acknowledging with great urgency your dependence, your utter dependence upon Him. Notice verse 24, the presence of Christ in the boat with them did not exempt or get the disciples out of this trouble and danger. It says, And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea while Jesus is there in the boat. We know in this that even in His bringing us into these situations, He is doing so, we know, Romans 8, for our good. We can go to... Uh, Think of Joseph in Genesis, Job. We think of many people throughout the Scriptures. He brings people, His people, into troublous situations for their good. There's no denying that. And that's the case here, as He's literally led His disciples into the sea, into a great storm. A storm that this boat could not handle. And therefore, we must give no place to regrets when we follow Christ into troubled waters. The opposite though, our sorrow over the past friends should be a sorrow over our hard-heartedness. It should be a sorrow over our lukewarmness. It should be a sorrow over our lack of zeal and consistency in following Christ and, and, uh, and over not following Christ wholeheartedly. But never let your heart go to regret over anything that by His grace we have done in actually following after Him. Rightly. Banish all those thoughts that we have followed Him too much. Sometimes we sinfully think we have followed Christ too much. As rare as that might be for you. You think you followed Him too much. There is not such a thing as following Christ too much. And you think to yourself, perhaps that if you'd just been a little bit more cautious, everything would have worked out better. No, friends. Christ says, follow me. Follow me to the full. And in following Christ to the full, to the fullest extent, there is, of course, need for caution in assuring that our zeal in following Christ is regulated by the Scriptures. There is a caution in that, that our zeal is based upon God's Word and not based upon our own zealous thoughts and desires. Do not be cautious. Do not be cautious. Meaning here, do not regret following Him. 
Do not have such a sorrow of the world or worldly sorrow where you begin to wonder, was it, was it really worth following Christ? It's always worth following Christ. Where you begin to be jealous of the world. And you see like the psalmist, you see the ease and the pleasures and how prosperous the world is. These disciples could have been thinking in the midst of the storm as the boat is filling up with water, if only we would have stayed on the shore. We could put ourselves in their place. Not that they were thinking that. But we could put ourselves in their place. We could say, well, what if we, if, if we had just stayed on the shore and maybe even had that, that sinful excuse like the, the man who wanted to go bury his father. If we were just like him, then everything would have been fine for us. But what benefit and blessing there was for them in being there in the ship, in the midst of the storm with Christ. Because that's where He led them. And so there has to be benefit and blessing. Better to follow Christ in trouble than compromising with the world and seeking peace and safety. Peace in the worldly sense, that is. When we follow Christ in the deep troubles, we behold His covenant-keeping power. We, we behold the display of His power and His grace. And seeing it, it is worth more than all the ill-gotten external comforts and half-heartedness and compromise and all these other things that Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes. Following Him is far better. First Peter 4. It says, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ... Happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. So never regret following Christ. Always regret not following Him. And turning to the Lord for forgiveness of not following Him. Regret your compromises, not your consistencies in following Christ faithfully from His Word. That's the first point, following Christ in the storm. Secondly, the display of Christ's humanity and care. The display of Christ's humanity and care. Verse 24, it says, And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. But he was asleep. The word is clear, Jesus Christ was sleeping. Why? Because He truly was a man. God does not sleep. He does not slumber, nor sleeps, right? Yet we know from the previous weeks that the Lord Jesus is Lord. He is God in two distinct natures, God and man, in one divine person forever. Man before the fall was capable of sleep. Adam was put into a deep sleep so that the Lord could take out of him from his rib and make Eve. Sleep is natural to man. But since the fall, there is a painfulness in man's need of sleep. Consider it every time you, you say, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, or you feel it, friends, a result of the fall. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is saying, in weariness, in weariness and painfulness, 
Man's need of sleep is accompanied by a weariness that is painful. The Lord Jesus Christ was without sin and yet lived in a sinful world and He was subject to the curse of God around Him and His circumstances even in his, unto His body as a substitute of sinners. Jesus knew what it was to be weary. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from His journey and the great multitudes knew that weariness that he even knew his that weariness in John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. It says there, Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. A couple verses later, Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. He knew what it was to be weary, he knew what it was to be thirsty. And so Jesus then, having labored through the day amongst the multitudes here, teaching them, healing them, performing miracles, etc., He actually slept as surely as He ate and as He drank and as He uh, wept, so He slept. Jesus did not merely look like a man. He was a man. Being weary, we slept. We sleep. He slept. So He could be the substitute of weary sinners. And that being God, His death was of infinite worth to cover all the sins of all His people. He suffered and died in His human nature as a substitute for sinful men and women. He is therefore a sympathetic high priest. As Hebrews says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. For in that He Himself hath suffered being tempted, He is able to succor them that are tempted. Friends, our Lord Jesus was fully and truly a man. And in His manhood, He was truly manifest in His sleeping in the boat. He's sleeping in the boat. As a man in His humanity, this did not limit His care for His followers. The boat is full of water, filled to the point of sinking, the waves overtaking the ship. Jesus is sleeping. Verse 25, it says, And His disciples came to Him and awoke Him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. He was still caring for his people while he slept. Even when he was sleeping, he was still caring for his people, because while in his human nature he does not cease to be God, the storm was his design from all eternity. And He planned it for this very moment for the sake of His disciples and for us. Psalm 121 says, as we referred to earlier, My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Isaiah 40, Hast thou not known... Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creators of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither 
is weary. There is no searching of His understanding. Yes, He's the God-man. He's keeping His people, caring for His people, and He's asleep in the boat. In His human nature, He's asleep. But in His divine nature, He slumbers not nor sleeps. All that Christ did were the actions of the divine person. The divine person. But not all that Christ did was the activity of His divine nature. The divine person of the second person of the one Godhead kids, right, was there sleeping in the boat in His human nature. And the same divine person who suffered and died on the cross for our sins in His human nature. Christ always, always, always cares for His people. Always. Even when He's sleeping in the boat. Always looking after His church. Before, at, after His incarnation and life, now exalted, how much more, we might say, even though it's not more, is He caring for His church. Christ's humanity and care. And then the third point, the true disciples' unbelief. The true disciples' unbelief. Verse 26. uh, Verse 25 again. And His disciples came to Him and awoke Him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And He saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, ye of little faith? Then He arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The disciples will show this over and over and over again. Just as we do. Though they truly believe they have a limited view of who Jesus Christ is. They knew that He was more than a mere man. More than a son of a carpenter. They knew they had seen and heard His power and authority. Seen something of His glory displayed in the miracles that He performed. But their view of Him was not as it should be. Just as our view of Him is not as it should be. It was not as clear. It's not. It was indistinct. Do you have an indistinct view of Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't clearly understand Christ, who He is, what He's done. Pray, friends. Seek the Lord that He would grant you the the grace to understand Christ clearly. You should desire further these doctrinal teachings from the Scriptures. People say doctrine and they think, oh, that's way above me. That's for you. It's the teachings of His Word for you. He wants you to grow in knowledge and understanding and wisdom of His Word. That's doctrine. The doctrines of Jesus Christ, what we're learning in this Gospel, in Isaiah, even about the covenant, etc. That's all doctrines of Christ. And we need to learn about Him because we love Him. And those things that we truly love, we want to know more about them. And so pursue Seeking Him. To have those teachings clear in your mind and heart more and more. In our day, as in the past, it's the liberals in the church. The liberals, the wayward ones, 
The rebellious ones who reject the divinity of Christ, of course they do, right? And we need to be clear who He is. The disciples were not so clear. They were not clear as to the implications that He was the Christ, the Son of God. They still had doubts here and there, and we see Him a little bit right here. Did they think He was going... Think of this. They're in the ship. The waves are covering the ship. The, the, it's filled to the point of sinking. Did they really believe that Christ would drown? Christ couldn't drown in the waters. He hadn't finished the work that the Lord had sent Him to do. The Redeemer of sinners would not perish by a mere storm or what we call it an accident on the waters. We just studied. His hour had not yet come. Not yet. It was impossible that Jesus perish in the midst of the sea. Impossible. If He had, then all their faith, all our faith, would be nothing. Jesus would be shown not to be God and not to be the Messiah. But He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. And therefore, He could not die or drown. But they could not grasp the work that Christ had come to do fully. They did not grasp the complete certainty that He would accomplish it. His real humanity was visible as He slept. He was a man. The God-man, He was a man. They could see, but there was no visible manifestation of His deity before them, His divine nature before them. And so they focused on the one and not the other. The human, the man, and not the divine. They believed Him to be fully man, but denied at least in part His divinity in this moment. A little bit at least. They were acting like uh, the great heresies of our day, of Arianism, which has been around a long time, like the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses believe, and Ebionism, which is like secularism today, the uh, broad world believes that. His deity, they were denying in part His divinity in their faith. His deity was clearly displayed when He had performed the miracles in His own name. But they did not see Him clearly. Their view of Jesus was inadequate. It's too low, just like ours is today. They tended to limit Christ because of His visible human appearance, the reality that He slept. And we do that in certain circumstances as well. When we are troubled when there something surprises us or we come in great danger or something, we also deny uh, Christ and who He is fully, right? Today we know that Jesus Christ is exalted on high. And we don't see His human appearance with our very physical eyes. Uh, we tend therefore to doubt His love, we doubt His power, because of His providence and His dealings with us. It's not always quick to answer our prayers. And we don't see Him, obviously. We look at a small fragment of God's providence, and we determine, that is, whatever's happening in the world, and we determine that the Lord either does not care, or He cares but cannot deliver us. 
And we see just a little part of what He's doing with us in providence. And so we doubt almost automatically the love and the wisdom and even the power of God. The disciples here uh, cried out in Mark's account, Master, carest thou not that we perish? We, you and me, you and us, Jesus, we perish? They doubted His power and His care for them. They doubted His divinity. In His dealings with His bride, the church today, we likewise uh, call in question, does He know? Does He care? Is He not in control? We look at the world today and what's happening in the world. and Very chaotic. There's dangers. Isaiah 40 again. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of His understanding. In other words, the people are saying, He can't see what we're doing. He doesn't care. And the answer comes from the Lord. He knows all too well the thoughts and even the intents of your heart. There is no searching of His understanding. It goes, it's infinite. It's perfect and it's eternal. And so we must believe, friends, in a divine Christ. For sometimes the church looks ready to drown. We look, we think we're ready to drown. People ready to drown. The world looks and on and anticipates the extinction, the eradication of the church of Jesus Christ. They wait for the complete obliteration of it, not of all that passes for Christianity, but all this Bible Christianity that is detested so much, they are waiting for it to be eradicated. And fools that we are, we begin to believe them. And we don't believe. And some come to believe the church is finished. Even those in the church, and that the Lord has said nothing, even though the Lord has said nothing can destroy my church. The church is not finished, friends. And we come to false views of eschatology, like amillennialism or premillennialism. Everything is getting worse and worse, whether, uh, therefore, it, it will keep doing this until the end, denying the very word of God and the promises of Jesus Christ. Well, it will get better and it will be glorious and the nations will turn to Christ. Whole nations, friends, will covenant with Him. Because the people of God belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. The elect belong to Him and He's on high, He's seated on a throne and He's going to work all things together for their salvation, for their good. Those who are called. His church is the apple of His eye. His bride his bride, Psalm 4, there be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. The Lord does care for His church. He cares for His bride. He will preserve His people. He'll plead for His own cause. The nations will come to Him. But there is encouragement here because Jesus distinguishes between no faith and little faith. He distinguishes between no faith and little faith. He says, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? There is an implication there of the faith that is there.
disciples, even in Christ's rebukes, even in His rebukes as He's rebuking them, He's absolutely true, no exaggeration. He says, faith, little faith. He cares for those who have little faith. He responds to them in their little faith. Yes, He surely rebuked them, but He delivered them nonetheless. There is an extreme, that is an extreme encouragement to all of us. Even weak and doubting Christians are forgiven, are accepted with God, at peace with God, on the way to glory, and they will never perish. Weak and as little faith they might have. Even poor, feeble Christians who do not enjoy the comfort of those who by God's grace are stronger than them. But they are just as safe as the strongest Christian this world has ever known, whoever that might be. It is certain that even the feeblest Christian will never perish as the strongest. All are absolutely safe in union with Jesus Christ, kept unto eternity. And if our faith is little, if your faith is little, praise the Lord and be thankful to Him for it. You have faith. Praise God. It is a gift. It is of His grace. But yet, you must still seek to increase that faith as all people should who are His people. To increase that faith by applying yourself to Him as these did here. Keep turning to Him. Apply yourself to the public assemblies of worship, words, sacraments, and prayer. Why? So that your faith would be strengthened by His grace. Even the feeblest believer, the weakest one, is still His forever. Praise God. And so you plead, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Verse 26. It says, And He saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, ye of little faith? Then He arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey Him? Christ stilled the storm and the sea. His power is unlimited. He healed individuals who were afflicted in body earlier in the chapter, even at a distance, the one with the fever. Here He commands the wind and the waves. And there's something about the wind and the waves. As we think of just wind and waves that epitomizes what is beyond human control. We cannot control the wind and the sea. We get news updates from the newsmen, the weathermen, they get forecasts, right? All which are wrong all the time. Fallible. But we cannot control it, can we? We can try to predict it, but we cannot control it. Children... Children, can you control the wind? Can you control the waves of the seas, the waters? Absolutely not. No. You can't. Can your parents control the wind or the seas? No, they can't. But Jesus can. And He does. The sea with its rolling waves... Crashing waves into the boat in the midst of the great storm. The wind so high. There's nothing in our power. The, the disciples' power. And yet, governed by Christ. 
the God of providence, those winds and those seas are stayed. Ezekiel 31. Thus saith the Lord God, I restrained the floods thereof, and the great waters were stayed. The sea. If we look at the sea in Scripture, throughout Scripture, it is a picture often of human history. And that's why at the end of time there is no more sea. History ended. Revelation 4, uh, this is before that time. Revelation 4, the sea is before the throne of, God, uh, throne of God. It is a sea as a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. What does that give you the picture of? Still. Right? That sea, when it roars, is trouble. When it's not at rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt because it's turning. That sea before God is still and calm in the mind of God. The restlessness of history that we see, it's all chaos with the rise and fall of kingdoms throughout time, the perpetual turmoil in the world that seems so random to the unbelieving eye is a sea of glass before the throne of God. Because there's nothing in it that is not known and indeed purposed. Uh, Everything is purposed, everything foreordained, everything decreed by the Almighty God. Nothing in all of history is not foreordained by God. Everything is. And there are no facts that exist by themselves. They are only divinely ordained facts. There are no events that just happen. They're all foreordained, decreed facts that the Lord works according to the counsel of His own will at the perfect time. Psalm 135, it says, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did He in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. He governs everything. That's why Jesus, roused from His sleep, was able to command the wind and the seas. And they obeyed Him. Then He arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the mediatorial King. In Revelation 5, following the vision of the throne of God, there's this vision of the mediator, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's opening up the seals of the book. The book being uh, the history uh, to come, planned by Jehovah in the interest of His church. And Christ the mediator is the dispenser, the executor of the Father's good pleasure. And now He sits on the right hand of the Father governing all things, all creation for the sake and good of His people. Ephesians 1, right it says. And if you put this truth in your heart, what a great comfort will come to you seeing Christ's ability to save. That He's able to save them to the uttermost, those that come to God by Him. That's what we have in our passage. The ship, verse 24, was covered with waves, but He was asleep and His disciples came to Him. They come to Him as we are to come to Him and awoke Him. Pray unto God as if you need to awake Him, even though He can't be awoken. Pray to Him like that. And they said, Lord, save us, we perish. Who do you come to for salvation? You come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, knowing He can save you. And if He doesn't save you, you perish. 
He is able to save great sinners, hell-deserving sinners. For He bore the sin of many, bore the wrath of God, so that the guilty, sinful men and women who believe on Him would be saved from eternal damnation. When we are enabled to see His all-sufficiency and to come to Him and rely upon Him for peace and acceptance with God and to have the assurance of Him beginning a good work in us, He will perform it unto the day of Christ. There is the basis of contentment. It is found in Christ alone. His ability to save to the uttermost. And there is contentment, friends, as well in His ability and His power, His strength to keep you, to care for you. And that greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. Then there is contentment in seeing His power over all things. Every, even by His very Word, all, the, uh, all for the interest of His church, there's contentment in the certainty of His promises to His people. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. This is where contentment is found. In honoring Christ and who He is and His ability to save and His power and all things to keep according to His providence and even all His promises. And so they honor Him. What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey Him? Well, He is God. He is the Creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas. And all that's in them. What more could we need to have as the basis and foundation of our faith to see Christ in His priestly saving role, even in His majestic, sovereign, kingly role over all things. And so lay hold of these things, friends. Lay hold of Christ today and say and exclaim, What manner of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey Him. We can say, He is God. And you come to Him, Lord, save us! Or we perish. A great man, but not merely a man. He's the God-man. And so if you're seeking contentment elsewhere, you must seek it now in Christ alone. He calls you, Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He's the God-man, the mediatorial King, sovereignly ruling over all things for our sakes, for the sake of the church, keeping us, protecting us as our Mediator and Savior. And you are called to come unto Him, even if you have no faith, if you have little faith, if you believe that you have strong faith, come to Him. And if you come, He will receive you. And deliver you every time and for eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We are thankful for the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the King, our Priest, our Mediator, who is the One who speaks to us as a prophet. We're thankful that He, the Savior, delivers us, Your people, His people, from all their sins, but also... As we follow Him, we know that we will follow Him into many dangers. We will follow Him into many trials. And there will be things that will test our faith and try our faith. And Father, we pray that You would pour out Your Spirit and Your grace that we would be able to stand, because we can't stand of ourselves in those days. 
we have to see that we are completely dependent not on ourselves, for we are nothing apart from Christ, but we are completely dependent upon You. And You can deliver us. You can strengthen us. You can give us the power and the contentment and the joy to make it through those days and the final day. We pray that You would do so by Your mercy and grace to us. Your covenant people be faithful to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.